Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Kristen Obrazel-Kulfen about her book, Vagrants and Vagabonds, Poverty and Mobility in Early America Republic, published by New York University Press in 2019. Dr. Obrazel-Kulfen is an instructor of public history at Rutgers University. Vagrants and Vagabonds focuses on the control over poor migrants' mobility and how their movement shaped ideas of class, race, and status in the United States. Examining how local and state governments criminalize vagrancy, Obrazel Colfin illustrates that the vagrants, uh, whether real or figment of people's imaginations, were crucial to the development of the state and the ideas about community. Dr. Obrazel Colfin, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Derek. I'm happy to be here. So I guess to get things started off, could you tell our listeners how you became interested in this topic? Absolutely. I, I love that question because it's something that connects my work over a longer period of time and something that was a tiny little question that I had about you know six or seven years ago that then managed to just become a, a, a giant rabbit trail. Um, so I was doing some research on women-led resistance to fugitive slave laws in antebellum, uh, in the antebellum North, in Pennsylvania in particular, and, and looking at some instances where African-American women, <clears throat> excuse me, led um, riots and all sorts of other uh, efforts to prevent people who had been enslaved, who had run away from being captured and either re-enslaved or jailed. And what I found through that process was that essentially the legislation that, or, or the legal ideas that made the fugitive slave laws, especially the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act possible, were based off of centuries of laws that made it possible to do the same things with vagrants and paupers and other people who were considered to be mobile, illicitly mobile in some way. So that comes down to a Supreme Court case, um, Prigg versus Pennsylvania from 1842, that the court opinion was essentially, we can capture, restrain, arrest, and return runaway slaves because we can already do this with vagrants. And the law is obvious on that point. Um, so it's a really interesting connection. I had no idea what they were talking about <laughs> with with the significance of vagrancy law. So I wanted to investigate why that was and what vagrancy laws had to do with slavery and what they had to do with freedom of movement in the early 19th century U.S. Well, that's an interesting way of getting to this project and everything like that. I think it worked out in the end. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So in the beginning of your book, you speak about uh, indigent tra- transiency. Uh, so what is this and why is it important for your study? Indigent transiency is essentially the act of being both mobile 
or not not stable in one particular location, and also experiencing poverty. And this, I came to this term because I was looking at so many different 18th and 19th century legal and social categories that were developed to talk about people in this that fit this description, right? So they're both poor and mobile, but they came up with all of these technical terms. So a pauper, somebody who is, you know, undeserving of aid, but is technically poor and vagrants and vagabonds and fugitives from justice. And all of these terms that were used to describe people that, that fell into this description. And I needed a term that allowed me to talk about what links these groups and not just the separate categories that they embodied. Because when I got into the records, I realized that people who are being arrested for vagrancy or people who are using or being incarcerated in almshouses and poor houses are often the same people. And there's not necessarily as much of a distinction between them at these categories as the authorities in the, in the 19th century would have us believe. Um, so they punished them differently. They relieved them differently in terms of welfare access and whatnot. But, but we have a lot of intersections across these populations. And so I was looking for a term to describe all of these groups based off of their shared characteristics. And so that's why I ended up using this term indigent transiency, even though it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you just need to have a, you know, a catch-all term right. that works for describing the people that you're exactly. talking about. <laughs> and so when when speaking about this, you know, I, fi- I find it interesting that, you know, they have all these distinctions and everything like that. And you're, and you're pointing out that, that they kind of are drawing these distinctions, but in reality, they're, they're not really all these people have so many different sorts of similarities and everything like that. And so why might that be like what in say society at this time is kind of bringing people under this umbrella of in, in, ah, indigent transiency? Sure. That's a great question. So the thing is that in the, in the early 19th century, especially right after the, the panic of 1819, we have this huge economic collapse Poverty spikes and thousands more people are experiencing deep, deep poverty than than had been previously. And the result of that is we also, you know, it's coupled with a satiated labor market. We also have plenty of available laborers and not enough jobs for for everyone in this period. And so the end result is that people are looking for work. Men, women, recent arrivals, recent immigrants, people who have families, uh, generations in the U.S., people who are um, self-emancipated, formerly enslaved, people who were born free. And it's everyone is looking for work. And so there's extensive mobility that arises as a result of this. And that leads to shared experience in some ways, right? Because everyone is is equally uh, becomes viewed as dangerous in, in the eyes of the law, because this kind of mobility was illegal. And the reason for that is the laws are based off of a, an older idea that communities should develop in fairly isolated ways, that you have essentially everything you need in your community and you should be able to survive there and not need to really move around too much. And that's just not possible with this kind of 
burgeoning uh, capitalist labor market in, in the 1820s and 1830s. And so the laws haven't caught up yet with the kind of reality of what jobs are available. So they end up punishing people by throwing them in jail or uh, removing them from individual locations because this mobility is viewed as inappropriate. And I find it interesting to kind of disconnect that you just spoke about between, you know, the realities of the world and, you know, this rapidly changing, you know, society and, you know, these these laws that are kind of stuck behind the times. And one of the points that you make in your book and towards the beginning, and I really I really appreciate it, is that vagrancy kind of helps bring about the creation of, you know, a modern bureaucratic state. And so how does that, how does that happen? Sure. Yeah. So it's one of the things I think is really fascinating is we often think about bureaucracy and state government and laws and law enforcement as these kind of dry things that seem to, you know, come into existence in a vacuum, right? It's just things written down in, in law books and things you get charged with <laughs> when you're being arrested, right? But in in what I learned in, in studying how vagrancy laws evolved and how poor laws and settlement laws evolved is that the laws are being shaped by the actions of people. They're being shaped by the movements of people who are being arrested for vagrancy and people experiencing poverty, where they have to go in order to find work, the kinds of subsistence activities that they have to pursue, whether that's sleeping outdoors because they can't afford anywhere else to stay or whether it's um, stealing food for survival, all of these kinds of activities end up being classified as vagrancy. And so the the laws are on the books for a reason, right? And so I was really fascinated to see how people, individual people whose activities don't normally end up in the historical record, who we don't necessarily know a ton about, have actually really shaped uh, shaped the, the legislation of, of or the evolution of the state, I should say, and its legislation. And in particular, the systems of settlement and removal, settlement law was essentially, you know, this, this kind of overarching legal schema that said, you have a right to be in one place where you have earned settlement. So whether that's by being born there or residing in a specific town for a certain period of time or paying taxes there, or even, you know, serving a term as an indentured servant in a given location, that's how you earn settlement. But it requires some form of stability, right? A certain length of time spent in one place. If you don't have that, or if you've left that place, you then become essentially, you know, you have you have no residency, and you become vulnerable to arrest as a vagrant or a, a mobile pauper. And in order to track these people which then facilitates the arrest and, and removal of sending them back to a place where they do have legal settlement, all of this paperwork <laughs> develops. And so um, there are these groups of people called overseers of the poor. It was often an elected position. Most towns and counties, cities in the U.S., um, in the Northeast, at least in, in the early part of the 19th century, had these people um, who filled this role. And what they would do is interview and track and record poor people who came into their towns and try to determine um, where they'd lived, whether they had a legal settlement uh, or residency in a particular location, whether they had a right to be here, 
whether they had um, sufficient means to maintain themselves, um, which basically just meant, you know, do you have do you have money or do you have a job or do you have some way to keep yourself afloat? If not, you were considered likely to become a public charge. And that was the phrase that they would use. And they would use that uh, to eject you from the town. And in some cases, that would just take the form of a verbal or written warning, you know, saying you don't have a right to be here. You can't use our welfare and relief system, which is only available to residents. Other times it involved an actual, you know, armed constable showing up and removing you from the town. Um, In New York, you would have constables transporting people from town to town the whole way back through the path that they had taken to get to that town that they were being removed from, back to wherever they did have a legal settlement. So it was a really elaborate system that was created in order to monitor and manage and and punish this this form of movement. And it just seems like a lot of work <laughs> to a certain extent, especially in the case yeah, of New it, York. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Hiring someone to walk you all the way back to your town yes. and, you know, <laughs> walking back then is no joke. No. And, and, and it was an outrageous amount of time and effort and money. And it actually led to New York abolishing this removal process in, in 1824. But Pennsylvania kept doing it for another couple of decades. And New York ended up actually reinstating it and carrying out some of these practices later again in the, the 20th century. <laughs> it's just so much work to do. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and speaking of these like settlement and removal laws, you know, I, I find I found it really interesting because really my only uh, exposure to this sort of literature on this was like, I think uh, Robert Love's Warning, which I read like my first mm-hmm. semester of graduate school. And, you know, I know you're kind of showing that you know, for one thing, one of the big points of your book is that the removal part that you were just talking about is actually something that happens for a lot longer than scholars have talked about. And I find it interesting that most people would associate mobility with freedom. And so you're talking about how state sanctioned mobility is used to combat this sort of freedom of mobility. And so what is that about? Yeah, that's a great question. This idea that mobility is central to freedom and in some senses even, you know, living out the promises of democracy is so foundational in the US. And it's actually in the Articles of Confederation, Article 4, so we're talking like 1780, right? The statement is made that people in the US will have free ingress and regress across state lines, right? So this is the whole idea that we are a confederation of states, but we have the ability to move within this larger uh, grouping of territory. But there's an exception in this clause. And the exception is paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice do not have free ingress and regress across state lines. And that statement seems to then seep into, this idea seems to seep into all of this other legislation that ends up allowing local and state governments the right to decide who gets to live where and who deserves the benefits and privileges of of that kind of, of residency. And the result is that we have 
people who are choosing to move for whatever reason, whether it's to be with a family member or to look for work or just because they'd rather live in a different place, if they are too poor when they arrive there, or if if a constable or a city watchman or anybody like that sees this person and thinks that they look like they might be a vagrant and might become a public charge, that perception is legally actionable. And that's sufficient to eject that person back to a place where they have legal settlement or just out of this city. So this is where the settlement and removal pieces come together. And that kind of state-sanctioned mobility then is undermining that person's freedom to decide where they want to go. And I think the best illustration of this is for women because coverture law was factored into settlement and removal practices. And so that meant that a woman who was married or widowed did not have her own legal settlement. Rather, her settlement was taken to be that of her husband, even if he was deceased. So there's one case that um, that I looked at where there's a woman who was widowed several years before. She didn't even live with her husband for the past couple of years of his life. She ended up in Philadelphia. He had died in Pittsburgh. But because they found out, she told them, she they, the overseers of the port interviewed her in, in Philadelphia, found out that her husband had had legal settlement in Pittsburgh. They removed her all the way from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. And this is antebellum Pennsylvania. So that's pretty far. It's far now. <laughs> um, but it, but it, it would take quite a long time and a lot of effort to do that. And so she had made a decision to be in Philadelphia. And this kind of sanctioning of movement based off of expectations for how, when, and where people would labor and contribute to communities ended up undermining her freedom of decision of where she should go in a, in an especially gendered way. Yeah. And I mean, that example alone is just crazy that that would be something that people would even consider doing, like going literally from one end of the state to the other, just to Mm -hmm. put one person back into town. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. And And you and you mentioned in there, you know, that someone might just look like they're of a vagrant. And so. How does clothing and, you know, appearances play into vagrancy and, you know, the ideas about mobility? It's connected in a couple of ways. For one, most vagrancy laws had really descriptive terminology. And and so I should say first that vagrancy laws were declared unconstitutional in 1972 in Supreme Court case, Papa Cristo versus city of Jacksonville, Florida. And the reason for that is because they were so subjective. Essentially, vagrancy laws were considered to be just unenforceable because it relied upon the individual perception and discretion of law enforcement officers. And so going back 150 years before that, that's what we see. We see an incredible amount of discretion and subjectivity that is allowed on the part of individuals who are arresting people for vagrancy. And one of the reasons that this was so easy for them to to do in a really subjective way is that the laws themselves were really subjective. It wasn't just the practice of how they were being carried out. So vagrancy laws in, in New York, for example, had this laundry list of activities that counted as vagrancy. And so one of those would be sleeping outdoors or lodging in barns, outhouses, market stalls, beer houses. Um, In other cases, it would be 
um, appearing to uh, wearing rags or appearing to give the impression of being poor. So whether or not you actually were, but giving this impression. So if people who are wearing raggedy clothing, people who might maybe not have a pair of shoes or anything like this would be more vulnerable to arrest for vagrancy. And the other factor here is that it's a it's a prima facie law. So that appearance alone is sufficient for uh, for a conviction. And in most cases, vagrants were not actually um, tried in, in court in any way. It was just an immediate lockup for a short period of time in, in jail, usually 30 to 60 days, although um, in some places such as Maryland, actually, it was like up to a year. Um, but clothing also factors in once you're inside the jail and the almshouse, because the one jail that I, I've looked at a lot in this book is the Art Street Jail in Philadelphia, which was a facility that was built around um, right before 1820 that functioned for roughly 40 years. Um, and it was primarily the location where vagrants and untried prisoners were held. And visitors to this jail reported that most vagrants incarcerated there were kept almost completely naked. Um, and provided very little clothing or blankets or any sort of this kind of, you know, the I don't even want to say creature comforts because it's a, a basic need for survival. Um, but clothing became this kind of site of uh, site where these ideas are played out around what does poverty look like? And the one kind of strange um, anecdote that comes up is in Pennsylvania in 1837 and 38, the state has a constitutional convention. And one of the things that's discussed is, should poor white men be able to vote? So they decided in 1838 to eliminate any sort of possibilities that black men could vote. They had previously not explicitly um, banned black men from voting, but they were, they were making it very clear in 1838 that they were not going to allow that. But there was debate among the participants in the constitutional convention over whether or not poor men should also be allowed to vote. And so one of the, you know, several of the um, people who are at the Constitutional Convention are arguing over this, saying we can't allow vagrants to vote. They're basically as lowly as black men. And then there's other references where they say that they are people who wear dirty clothing, they sleep outdoors, they lodge in market houses. And this outrageous line where they say that we can't allow vagrants to vote because they wash their cravats in hog troughs. <laughs> so a cravat is this, you know, strange sort of tie that, that men would have worn that was a sign of being fairly genteel in, in public. Um, and, and they were perceived as, as dirty. So clothing was another metric by which people were, people's class was, was judged. And for me, I, I find it kind of interesting. And I, I appreciate that you pointed out how late uh, vagrancy becomes unconstitutional, that in reality, you know, it's in the living memory of most Americans out there. Um, and that in reality, you know, the, the kind of broad discretionary power that you talk about um, in the book and that you mentioned, you know, goes back and is the reason that, you know, eventually you know, 150 years later, it becomes unconstitutional, really hasn't exactly left our society mm -hmm. either. Absolutely. Yeah. Vagrancy laws may have been declared unconstitutional, but the 
function and, and kind of purpose behind that legislation just crops up in different ways with different names. Um, so it's the same kind of practices that we see in anti-loitering statutes, people being arrested for sitting outside on sidewalks or public benches for long periods of time, um, and and stop and frisk uh, policies as well, um, basically being able to you know detain someone in order to determine whether they've done something illegal just because they appear to be suspicious to a, a law enforcement officer. Um, I think one of the, the most important components of this is the criminalization of homelessness that we absolutely still see in the U.S. today. And that manifests in things like um, anti-camping statutes and and other uh, laws that ban people from sleeping in their cars or sleeping in public spaces. Legislation that criminalizes and bans that activity is essentially anti-vagrancy legislation, just with, with different different names attached to it. But the goal is the same. It's really just to move people experiencing deep poverty and homelessness out of the public eye and kind of absolve um, cities and, and residents from having to confront it. Yeah, for me, when reading the book, you kind of get struck by how many similarities there are, you know, in the early 1800s um, to society today when we're talking about this. And it really just reminds you that, you know, kind of systems of oppression just kind of morph over time and are in many cases never really go away. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things and you and you mentioned race earlier on with the uh, Constitutional Convention and everything like that and the comparison to black men. And one of the things that you compare in the book and you show the connection between is, you know, these vagrancy laws and fugitive slave laws and the kind of comparisons between vagrants and enslaved people or freed people. And so how are these groups connected? They're incredibly connected, both through lived experience, as well as how laws and and forms of punishment targeted their connections. And so so the one important thing to think about, I think, here is we often consider people who self-emancipated, runaway slaves, in a kind of separate world. We think of them, you know, leaving the deep south, moving toward north to to gain freedom and using the resources on the Underground Railroad and this kind of triumphant abolitionist narrative. But when we think about the daily activities for survival that people who emancipated themselves had to employ, firstly experiencing homelessness as well. And in a, in a much more, you know, dangerous fashion, because they would have been far more vulnerable to be seen in public because a free mobile person of color was often assumed to be a runaway, even if they were free, but most certainly would have drawn the attention of any sort of law enforcement or slave catchers or city watchmen or constables who may have encountered them. So on the roads and streets and in the forests and and country areas in, in the Northeast, we would have seen people in all of these categories kind of traversing the same spaces um, in, and both being vulnerable just in, in, in ways that are influenced by their, their race and gender. Uh, but the, there's, there's more to it than that in terms of how the laws targeted um, fugitive slaves and vagrants together. And part of that is 
that vagrancy was seen to be a racial characteristic. Um, And part of that has to do with freedom of movement and the desire to escape from a place where you've been enslaved has meant that over time, historically, and this is something that the the African-American historian Carter G. Woodson talks about, after emancipation, you see spikes in in freedom of, of movement and mobility among people of color. So with gradual emancipation, we see this with after full emancipation, 1865, we see this. And the result of that, which has a practical connotation, right? You want to leave the place where you've been enslaved and start fresh. It means that people who are anti-abolitionist or people who are concerned about, you know, creating racist policies to inhibit the the freedom of newly emancipated people is they link them. And so there's all sorts of legislation, both in small towns and cities, as well as states that basically will have an enumeration of categories of people who are not allowed to be there, not allowed to move freely. And they will say vagrant Negroes and whites. And they will they will say vagrants and and black people. They would just link them directly rhetorically. And the result of this was that um, people of color were more likely to be arrested for vagrancy. And so in Philadelphia in the 1820s and 30s, African Americans are significantly overrepresented in the population of incarcerated vagrants than they are in in the rest of the population in the city. And it's it's a pretty significant number. The other thing that that connects vagrancy laws and fugitive slave laws is the gradual manumission process. So in the antebellum era, as states in the Northeast are deciding to gradually move toward eliminating slavery within their borders, they come up with these kind of interim measures to um, to manumit people, which is essentially that people born after a certain date will be free once they reach a certain age. It's kind of the, the formula that's employed. So in Pennsylvania, it's 1780. Um, in New Jersey, it's 1804. People born after uh, enslaved people or the children of enslaved people born after 1804 will be free at either the age of 21 or 25 if you're a man or if you're a woman. And that legislation has written into it that anyone manumitting an enslaved person has to prove that that person will not become a vagrant, will not become chargeable to the public welfare, will not essentially um, need to draw on poor relief or assistance. And so there's this idea that free people of color can't provide for themselves. They will slip into vagrancy immediately upon emancipation. So this becomes like a a hysteria um, in in the mid-Atlantic, especially when we get to like the 1840s, 1850s, there's these assumptions that with growing numbers of free people of color, we have um, growing rates of of vagrancy. And I find that so interesting because um, I'm trying to think, I can't remember if it's the 1840 or the 1850 census, but I know one of the pre-Civil War uh, censuses, tries to actually uh not really like in a you know way that is supposed to be accurate but talks about how uh tries to show the mental state and kind of you know of people and i remember that when reading about it that it 
try to show through, you know, quantitative, you know, reasoning and everything that free black people were more likely to be dependent and like mentally ill or Mm -hmm. something like that. And the results were just, I mean, wildly Mm -hmm. inaccurate, but they were supposed to show that freedom was not suited for african-americans mm-hmm. and to me the kind of that's kind of a direct outgrowth of what you're showing in your book to me at least uh, at least it was something that i thought about when reading absolutely absolutely and it's something that african-american abolitionists are explicitly saying no here we have the evidence to prove that for example members of our churches in in philadelphia in particular are you know very self-sufficient and able to earn money to provide for their families, et cetera. But it's, it's absolutely a, a really pervasive idea that, that becomes increasingly difficult to combat. And especially in kind of border areas like Maryland and Delaware, um, there, the state finds all sorts of, of ways to try to limit the ability of, of people of color to prove that that's not the case, um, limit them from moving between labor contracts, um, but also limits them from from choosing not to participate in, in specific forms of labor. So it essentially becomes that they're, they're trying to create like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting to think about. And, you know, I, I really appreciated the connections that you draw in this book, particularly the ones between, you know, vagrancy and race and slavery, because it's, it's really like, as you said, you know, most people, they kind of think about, you know, freed slaves and, you know, runaway slaves as kind of this separate world. But as you show in the book, you know, they're all connected. And on a logical level, that makes complete sense. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's something that, you know, like, as you said, logically, it makes sense, but it's hard to find necessarily evidence that makes it super clear. At least that's what I thought going, going into the project, but it ended up not really being that complicated. Um, You know, it's, you find a lot of evidence of self-emancipated people in in almshouses and elsewhere that are basically finding ways to to navigate um, that system of of controlled labor and and mobility and these associations between mobility and vagrancy and and race. And in terms of, you know, kind of policing vagrants and everything like that, I've, one of the things that you talk about, because you don't just look at, you know, laws and politicians and everything like that, your book is very rounded, which I really appreciate. And so you look at, you know, how the public is engaged with this and how, you know, pe- everyday people are part of the police apparatus for vagrants and everything like that. So how does that look? Yeah, this is um this is a complicated idea and it actually is kind of connected to some of the things that we see today in terms of um ICE Immigration and Customs Enforcement um actually deputizing local police forces and sheriff's offices to um arrest and restrain migrants. Um the same procedure was actually employed in the early 19th century. Um, And this is something that was used as well to restrain fugitive slaves. Also, um, this idea of posse comitatus, this is something that the historian Gautam Rao writes about in in incredibly um, provocative and valuable ways. Essentially, the public was relied upon to be the eyes and ears of the burgeoning police apparatus. There was not a well-established police force in 
the 1820s and 1830s in northern cities. This developed over time largely in response to uh, efforts to kind of observe and and punish large populations of uh, mobile people who were considered to be petty criminals and whatnot and, and, and vagrants. And average people were enlisted to assist city watchmen and constables and magistrates in identifying people who might be vagrants. And in Philadelphia, we see this in the records of who's reported to the jail on the vagrancy docket. Um, they'll have a category in the vagrancy docket that lists who uh, this person was arrested on the oath of, is the phrase that they use. So basically, who is testifying that this person is, in fact, a vagrant? And it's not always a city watchman. Um, it's often just people who observed a particular behavior and reported someone to the city watch. Uh, and and this becomes formalized in, in a couple of different places. In, in Delaware, in particular, um, there's a statute from the 1840s that actually offers a reward of $3 for each person who is able to report somebody who is then um, found to be a vagrant. So it's incentivized for people to essentially report on their neighbors and identify behaviors that are perceived to be threatening or uh, unpleasant in some way. Uh, and, And this comes down to the the really important association in in the antebellum U.S. that poverty was perceived as a moral failing in some way. Um, And and oftentimes disease was as well. So things that the poor experienced on a regular basis could often be pointed to as, as their own fault, essentially, and not the fault of, for example, unemployment or high housing costs or any of the things that we know actually cause poverty for for thousands of people. Yeah. And I mean, I I find it really interesting, the idea of like, you know, because there's not this sophisticated, you know, police force during this time period, you really have to rely on everyday people. And, you know, as you show, a lot of people are buying into this, you know, the popular culture is always kind of showing vagrants and what they're supposed to look like with the clothing and everything like that, how they're acting and stuff like that. And so they kind of just everyone in a way, I guess you could say, becomes indoctrinated in this kind of culture of policing vagrants. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you spoke briefly um, just now or you mentioned disease. And for me, one that connection, I really I really appreciate it because, you know, I, one of my favorite books is um, Jim Downs is sick from freedom. And, you know, he has a section dealing with, you know, the way that uh, freed uh, enslaved people are kind of tied to disease in the South after the Civil War. And for me, I think your book kind of really shows how one, you know, yes, enslaved people and freed people can be tied to disease as well, but that the poor in general, who, as we've already said, are kind of connected with freed people and enslaved people um, are tied to diseases and the kind of ideas of what disease is, who can get disease, how it spreads are intimately connected with ideas of vagrancy. And so how does that happen? What does that look like? Absolutely. Yeah. So essentially we're talking about, you know, the late 18th, early 19th century. This is a while before we get germ theory. So 
Early Americans don't have a really robust understanding of how disease spreads. And in particular, the one disease that's really deeply associated with vagrancy is cholera. And the understandings of cholera in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s were based off of this idea of miasma theory, which is essentially that cholera is spread through bad air, that you can get the disease by breathing bad air or by coming in contact with a couple of other things in terms of like bad water, bad fruit. But that's once they start to figure out what they're, what they're talking about. This idea of, of bad air basically led people to not want to be near anyone who might be spreading the disease, which is actually really reasonable <laughs> now that we actually do know how, how germs spread. Um, but it led to people creating social and cultural associations between individual groups of people and this disease. And so the idea was, you know, there's um, John Snow is this English physician who um, has been referred to as the father of modern epidemiology. He's the one who really discovered how cholera does spread um, in the 1850s. But before he figured that out, he's writing about the 1832 epidemic and he says, vagrants are notorious for communicating disease. And it's because they are not clean. They lack personal cleanliness. And that is because of their poverty, right? And so he he says this, but this is really a statement that is reflected by tons of people's perceptions. And the idea is that because They can't wash themselves regularly because they can't change their clothes regularly because they live in um, dirty environments, sleeping outdoors, living in close quarters. Um, And this is where the the poor of of many different backgrounds also get drawn in in terms of neighborhoods and, um, you know, crowded um, housing areas where lots of people are living in in a small space that gets pointed to as the the kind of source of disease. Some people believe that that vagrants and their dirty clothing and whatnot can actually generate cholera. They can they create it just by being near people and 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 can cause the disease just by their presence. Um, and this is something that leads to the policing of the movement of vagrants, um, specifically around epidemics. And this is a, a major issue in the Northeast because. Cholera devastates the Northeast in in 1832. Um, There's this huge epidemic and thousands of people die in major cities from Montreal to New York to Baltimore. Um, And there is a lot of, of effort to find and restrain and arrest vagrants in order to prevent them from spreading the disease. This is something that happens in England before it travels here because the disease moves from Europe um, to Canada and then down through the Eastern seaboard. But there's one really particular case study that I, I write about in the book that I think is a really interesting way of examining how vagrancy and cholera are associated. And so there's these ideas that vagrants are responsible for cholera, right? And so if we look at the jails and places where vagrants were held, we find that there were higher death rates. Now, this is not necessarily for the reasons that uh, contemporaries thought, um, but rather due to poor sanitation and contaminated water sources and whatnot. But the result is that in, in Philadelphia, a really small percentage of the population died during the cholera epidemic. 
1832. But in the city's vagrant jail, the one at Arch Street, roughly about one in four prisoners died of cholera during the epidemic. And the state, the city and the state launch a huge investigation to figure out why. And the explanations that they come up with are essentially because they were vagrants. (laughs) Um, And so it's a really interesting way to explore the definitions that they were coming up with to um, justify and explain away this really high death toll. Yeah, I mean, speaking of you know self uh, self fulfilling <laughs> prophecies and everything like that, you know, there there you have one. You know, vagrants cause disease, vagrants die from disease. Oh, mm-hmm. vagrants must mm-hmm. cause disease. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, I guess before we let you go, um, and you know, before we before we end this, I just want to encourage everyone to go out and buy and read this book. You know, vagrants and vagabonds by Dr. Kristen Obrazo Colfin. And before we let you go, can you tell us what we can expect from you in the future? What might you be working on right now? Well, I'm, I'm looking to, to keep exploring some of the same ideas and figuring out how poverty is unique in the American experience and, and what in particular we can learn about survival in early America by exploring the experiences of people experiencing poverty. Um, so I'm, I'm going to keep keep plugging away and exploring these ideas of, of subsistence. Well, I'm sure whatever you have coming up next is going to be great. You know, this book was really uh, refreshing to w- read for myself. You know, I'm very interested in mobility and everything for my own research. And, you know, this is just really good. And I think as the listeners will have picked up, there's a lot that's talked about in this book, you know, dealing with the early 1800s that is definitely present for today. Thank you so much, Derek. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much for being on the program.